Well, good morning. If you've got your Bibles, and I hope that you do, would you please take them out and turn with me once again to the book of Genesis and to chapter 45. Genesis 45, our study of the life of Joseph continues today. And uh, actually, I believe it reaches the pinnacle. I think this passage really is the pinnacle passage of the, the entire Joseph narrative that we have been looking at all the way since we began looking at it back in chapter 37. You remember back in chapter 37 that Joseph's ten elder but jealous and hateful brothers all took him and sold him into slavery. They separated him from his, his loving father uh, and from his younger brother Benjamin. And ever since that has happened back in chapter 37, we've probably been wondering, how's this all going to turn out? How's, how's this story going to end? And, and what we know is that all of Joseph's family had come to believe that he was dead. His, his father and his younger brother no doubt believed that he had been torn to pieces by a wild beast. But the other brothers who actually sold him into slavery had likely come to believe that he was dead, uh, probably having died for various whatever reasons while he was a slave in Egypt. But as we've continued to study this, this story, we've come to know Joseph is still very much alive. In fact, though he had spent years as a slave and, and years as a prisoner, according to God's divine providence, Joseph had ascended to becoming the governor over all of Egypt, second only in command to Pharaoh himself. And in that position, as we have been studying, he, began, he was the one who was responsible for distributing all of the Egyptian food supply because Egypt and all of the surrounding areas were under a severe famine. And it was during that period of time that Joseph was once again reunited with his ten older brothers. You see, they had come all the way down from, from Canaan to Egypt in order to buy food. But as we've seen, when they got there, they didn't recognize Joseph. They didn't understand who he was. They just simply thought that he was the, the man who was responsible for setting the price of the food and for the one who controlled how much they got. Joseph knew who they were. And in his knowledge of them, he realized they had no clue that he was their flesh and blood that had, whom had, they had sold into slavery 20 years earlier. Now, from, from a strictly human and, and carnal perspective, I keep coming back to this. I keep driving this point home because I think it's important that we get it. From a strictly human perspective, when we come to this point in, in, in the story of, of, of the narrative of Joseph, all of us, I think, can imagine what in our natural human feelings, how we might respond. I think that there are probably some of us who, who would likely imagine how we could plot about getting even with our brothers for what they had done to us. Others might have flaunted our position over them and at least let them know, I'm not going to do anything to you, but I just want you to know that I've made it. I mean, I've gotten to the, to the to peak of, of, of my potential, and, and you guys are still just common shepherds up in Canaan. I'm the guy here in, here in charge in Egypt, and we would have gloated over our position of, of authority and, and various ways over them. I still think that there are others among us, though, who wouldn't have gone that far. We would have just simply nonchalantly ignored the brothers dismissing them from our lives, just basically writing them out of our story and never allowing them to be a part of our lives ever again. Regardless of where you find yourself on that continuum of responses, 
Here's what I want you to see. Joseph does none of those things. Joseph sets out to be reconciled to his brothers. Now listen, reconciliation means bringing two opposing parties back together. It not only means reunion, but it means that the relationship will then from that point forward be marked by peace and harmony rather than enmity and hostility. But as we, as we noted last week, reconciliation can only occur if there is genuine repentance on the part of the one or the ones who have done the offending. And in, the case, in this case, reconciliation would only be possible for Joseph's brothers when they were truly repentant of having treated him so poorly and having sold him into slavery. As we noted last week, Joseph was able to test his brothers with regard to this exact thing. As their actions and as Judah's, <coughs> excuse me, as Judah's speech at the end of chapter 44 reveals, a change had occurred in the hearts and in the minds and in the actions of his brothers. Even though they still didn't recognize him for who he was, that he was the brother that they had sold, they nevertheless exhibited through their actions and through their, through their words, that they were truly sorry for what they had done to Joseph. In fact, at the end of chapter 44, Judah's offer to take Benjamin's place as a slave in order to spare his father Jacob from further experiencing grief and sorrow, well, that seems to be the thing that finally broke Joseph. And in fact, we begin to see just an overwhelming pouring out of his emotions. And that's where we come to in our, in our text this morning. Beginning in chapter 45, verse 1, hear the word of God today. Then Joseph could not restrain himself before all those who stood by him. And he cried out, make everyone go out from me. So no one stood with him while Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud. And the Egyptians in the house of Pharaoh heard it. And then Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Does my father still live? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed in his presence. And Joseph said to his brothers, Please come near to me. So they came near. And then he said, I am Joseph, your brother, whom you sold into Egypt. But now, do not therefore be grieved or angry with yourselves. Because you sold me here, for God sent me before you to preserve life. For these two years the famine has been in the land, and there are still five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvesting. And God sent me before you to preserve a posterity for you in the earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So now it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord of all his house and a ruler throughout all the land of Egypt. Hurry and go up to my father and say to him, Thus says your son Joseph, God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me. Do not tarry. You shall dwell in the land of Goshen and you shall be near to me, you and your children and your children's children, your flocks and your herds and all that you have. There I will provide for you, lest you and your household and all that you have come to poverty. For there are still five years of famine. 
Behold, your eyes and the eyes of my brother Benjamin see that it is my mouth that speaks to you. So you shall tell my father and all my glory and of all my glory in Egypt, of all that you have seen, and you shall hurry and bring my father down here. And then he fell on his brother Benjamin's neck and he wept. And Benjamin wept on his neck. Moreover, he kissed all his brothers and wept over them. And after that, his brothers talked with him. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God for the people of God. Let's pray together this morning. Our Father, we thank you for this day and for this opportunity we have to be in your house. I pray, Lord God, that you might now just bless our time together. Help us to truly understand this word that you've given us and help us to make application to our lives and change us for our sake, but ultimately for your glory, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Many of you have gotten a chance to know my son, Charlie. Some of you have gotten, uh, had, had him in some of your classes and just interacted with him. Um, if you've spent very much time with him at all and tried to engage him in a conversation, you will immediately become aware of the fact that the boy is infatuated with baseball. It's pretty much what he eats, breathes, and sleeps most of the time. He loves playing it. He loves watching it on TV. He loves going to the games and watching them there and getting autographs and trying to figure out what all is going on. He even gets up and watches the recaps to the games when he gets up in the morning. He has to see all the clips. He loves the bloopers. He will watch it all. He'll just be giggling to himself. Dad, come here, let me show you this. The other day, he and I were riding together in my truck, and he wanted to know if I had seen where this one boy had gone out and been chosen to throw out the first pitch to a ball game. And he got up to throw it, and he threw it to the catcher, and the catcher came to bring the ball back to the boy. But what the boy didn't know is that the catcher was his dad. His dad, who had been stationed overseas in Afghanistan and was returning home, and the young boy had no idea that the, that the catcher that he was throwing to with his was his father until his father pulled the mask off and pulled the helmet off and there he was. And immediately the boy just broke into sobs. And I made it through it in the first service. I don't know if I'm going to in this one. And he broke into sobs and he jumped up in his dad's arms and he just hugged him around his neck and he started crying. And Charlie's telling me all this in the back seat while I'm driving down the road. And he put the hook in me so good that I had to go home and I had to pull up the clip to watch it myself. And sure enough, I'm watching it and I'm just crying like crazy. Here's the point. Reunion stories like that always get me. Every time I watch families who are being reunited with one another, with a soldier who's coming back from war, or with someone who hasn't seen one another in such a long time, and they embrace because they've not had that opportunity to see one another and to experience one another's presence, it always gets me. I just cry right alongside them. But I want you to know, as sweet as reunion stories are, I want you to know that reconciliation stories are even better. You see, as I mentioned, reconciliation involves more than just reunion. It involves, reconciliation involves putting away the hostility and the enmity and the strife that actually caused the separation to occur to begin with. 
And it replaces all of those things with harmony and with love and with affection. Reconciliation is demonstrated for us in the last two verses of the text that I read for you this morning. Joseph is is hugging Benjamin. Benjamin is hugging Joseph. They're both crying into each other's neck as they weep. But then verse 14 says, Moreover, he kissed all of his brothers and he wept over them. And after that, his brothers talked with him. Listen, in light of everything that we've read that Joseph's brothers did to him back in chapter 37, stripping him of his coat that his dad had given him, throwing him into a pit, selling him off as a slave, never thinking about him again, going on with their lives, causing him to be separated from the love of his father for over 20 years, causing him to be separated from his brother Benjamin, causing him to be not, no longer free for over two decades. He had every reason to be angry, and yet what you see taking place in verse 14 is reconciliation. All of the animosity and the hatred that had characterized this relationship from all the way back in chapter 37 is now replaced by affection and by love. Now the question is, when we get here, the question is, really, how did we get here? How do you get to verse 14? In light of chapter 37 and everything else that's happened, how do you get to the point where true reconciliation can take place? Well... As I mentioned, chapter 44 tells us that it cannot occur without repentance. That was the message from last week. That's looking at it from the perspective of the one or the ones who have done the offending. But today we have to look at reconciliation through the eyes of the one who has been offended. Through the eyes of the one who has been sinned against. That's the viewpoint that we come to here in chapter 45. And the first thing that I want you to notice, the first point on your outline this morning is this. Reconciliation is only possible through forgiveness. Reconciliation is only possible through forgiveness. In fact, I want to drive this point home so well on the front end that I'm going to restate it maybe a little more definitively. Unless the offended party is willing to forgive the one or ones who have sinned against them, reconciliation cannot happen. Unless the offended party is willing to forgive the one or the ones who have sinned against them, reconciliation cannot happen. Now I want you to notice the scene, the way that Moses describes the scene in which Joseph extends forgiveness to his brothers. His emotions just overwhelm him. He, he can't contain himself any longer. All those emotions that have been pent up within him since all the way back in chapter 37 just begin to erupt and he begins to weep and he begins to sob and everybody all throughout the courtroom, all throughout Pharaoh's house can hear what's going on even though he sends them all away. And I imagine that his brothers, it's just him and his brothers and I can imagine they are staring wide out at him going, what in the world is going on? In fact, I would even imagine there was a little bit of fear because they really had no idea what he was going to do. But instead of something terrible happening to them, notice that Joseph is able to collect himself enough, and when he does, he speaks to them for the very first time he speaks to them in Hebrew. 
Up to this point, he had used a translator, much like all of those guys who, and, and gals that just went down to, to Guatemala were using translators. They would speak English, and then the translator would turn around and translate it into Spanish, and it would go back and forth just like that. That's the way it was happening here until this point when Joseph reveals himself to be a Hebrew, and he begins to speak Hebrew to his brothers, and he says, I am Joseph. And then he asks a question, and I want to deal with it for just a second. He asks, does my father still live? Now that may seem like a strange question in light of what Judah had just said to him. Judah in chapter 44 had just revealed that his father was still alive. And so we may wonder, why is Joseph asking, does my father still live? Well, most scholars would say really the, the point of this question is not so much to find out if he's still breathing. It's to find out, does he have vitality? Is he is he really in, in, in good health? Is he Does he have that? Really, I think you find out... I want to know, can the man travel? And we'll get to that in a little bit. But he's asking, does my father live? Does he, does he have real life still in him? Now, but, but don't miss the fact that Joseph reveals himself. He reveals who he is. And in the, in, in the asking of the question, the brothers, the brothers don't know what to say. And as a matter of fact, they're standing there, they're all shocked. First of all, because of the display of emotion. Second of all, because he's speaking Hebrew. And then third of all, they realize that if that's truly Joseph, he's the one that we sold into slavery. And so they can't answer his question. They stand there dismayed is how most of your versions translate it. The NIV translates it, they were terrified. Literally speaking, the Hebrew word there means that they were overwhelmed, they were confounded, they were shocked, they were thunderstruck by the revelation that Joseph had just laid on them. And with good reason, because they believed, they had left to this point, believed that the man who was speaking to them was dead. And yet here he was. Joseph recognizes their dismay, and so he calls them closer. It's like he said, come here. Come in here, get a good look at my face. I know it's been 20-something years, but look at me. I'm Joseph. And then he says this, I am Joseph, your brother. And then he adds this. He says, I am the one whom you sold into Egypt. That's how he convinced them that he was who he said he was. Because they had not shared that information with anyone. Only somebody who had been there in chapter 37 would know that this had taken place. Consequently, when he says, I am Joseph, whom you sold into slavery, he convinces them of his identity. Now here's what I want you to know. At this point, the story could go either way. All Joseph has done so far is just reveal his true identity to his brothers. And he has reminded them that they had committed a sin against him by selling him into slavery. But then according to verse 5, we realize that Joseph's heart is filled with forgiveness and not revenge because he tells them, but now do not therefore be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. We're going to come back to that last phrase in just a second. But I want you to think about this way. If Joseph tells his brothers not to be grieved or angry with themselves over what they had done. Don't you know that that statement meant that he was no longer grieved or angry with them either? His allowing them to forgive themselves was an expression of the fact that he had forgiven them. And there's no doubt that Joseph had been hurt by his brothers. He had been robbed of decades of fellowship with them and with his father. Yet he is expressing forgiveness to them over their sin. 
Joseph acknowledges the sin of his brothers. He says, you sold me into slavery. He doesn't dismiss it. He doesn't just gloss over it. He acknowledges what took place, but he no longer holds that sin against them. That is what forgiveness is. It is the releasing of another from the penalty of their sin. Stephen Cole has put it this way. He says, to forgive means that you choose to absorb the pain and loss caused by the other person and they go free, even when they don't deserve it. He goes on and he adds this. He says, forgiveness is costly for the one doing the forgiving. To that, I would just simply add this. Forgiveness is not only costly, forgiveness is necessary if reconciliations take place. It's necessary. So how does one get to the point where they can forgive like that? Because I believe it's truly amazing when we see that and when we really put it into, in, in, into a true uh, understanding of what all had occurred. How is it possible for a person to absorb the pain and the loss caused by someone else and no longer hold their sin against them? Well, as I mentioned, we, we get our first glimpse of how we can do that based upon what Joseph says in verse 5 at the very end. He tells his brothers not to be grieved or angry with themselves over what they had done. Why? Because he recognized that God was the one who was ultimately behind what happened to him. Joseph said, God sent me before you to preserve life. And that leads me to the next point on your outline. You see, reconciliation is not only possible through forgiveness, but reconciliation is informed by the recognition of God's sovereignty. It is informed by the recognition of God's sovereignty. From verses 5 through 9, we get what one author has described as the most comprehensive example of the relationship between God's sovereignty and man's freedom that can be found in Scripture. I want you to notice five times, there's five examples here, and if you're one that likes to underline in your Bibles, here's a great place for you to begin to start underlining. I mean, just point them out to you. Verse 5, you'll notice this. Joseph tells them, you sold me, but God sent me. You sold me, but God sent me. Verse 7, he says again, God sent me. Verse 8, he declares, it was not you who sent me here, but God. Verse 8 also says, he has made me father to Pharaoh. He's made me the one who Pharaoh comes to for advice. He's made me the one who has authority to, to be able to speak into Pharaoh's life. It's God that did that. And then finally in verse 9, Joseph tells his brothers to tell, tell his father Jacob, God has made me Lord of all of Egypt. Now what I want you to understand is that Joseph's theology is quite clear. He clearly recognizes the hand of God at work, even in the cruel acts of his brothers. I like the way that Bruce Waltke, who's an Old Testament scholar, the way he describes this. He says, from a from a worm's eye view. We often talk about from a bird's eye view. He says from a worm's eye view, Joseph's narrative reads like a, like a nightmare, a cacophony of outrageous excesses unjustly inflicted upon him. A rational conclusion that it is all absurd from this perspective could have made him an existentialist, a cynic, or a nihilist. But Joseph chooses the heavenly perspective that God is working through him to bring about what is good. Joseph's perspective on God's active hand in bringing good out of evil is stated again a few chapters later. In fact, at the very last chapter, Genesis chapter 50, 
in verse 20, we read that he says this, tells his brothers, but as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring it about as it is this day to save many people alive. Joseph's life, his, his life is a perfect illustration of the theological linchpin that we come across in Paul's writing in Romans chapter 8, verse 28, where he says, and we know that all things work together for the good of those, to those who called, those who love God and those who are called according to His purpose. What our passage reveals to us is that Joseph got to the point where he could forgive his brothers of what they had done to him by realizing that God was the one who was ultimately sovereign over everything that had happened to him. And that God was using those circumstances, although they were terrible and awful, God still used them to bring about His will. Now, let me be clear about this point. I want to be crystal clear at this point. Joseph is not giving his brothers a free pass on what they did to him. They were the ones who sinfully sold him into slavery. Just because God is sovereign does not mean that those who commit sin are not culpable and that they're not guilty. No, the brothers acted according to their own wills and their own desires when they treated Joseph so harshly and when they stripped him of his, of his robe and when they threw him in the pit and when they sold him as a slave. They did what they wanted to do without the least bit of coercion. Yet even in that, Joseph is making it clear that God overruled his brother's sin and used what they did to him for his own good purposes. Donald Gray Barnhouse has written this. He says, To see God in all things, both good and evil, enables us to forgive those who injure us. It does not incline us to condone their fault as if they were unconscious instruments impelled by Him who made use of them. But we can pity and forgive and pray for them as slaves to their own passions and enemies to their own welfare and real though unwitting benefactors to our own souls. Now, Recognizing that God stands above all things and that He uses all things, even the difficult, challenging, hurtful things that others do to us to accomplish His will and bring about His good, well, that is what allows us to move past the resentful feelings of revenge and animosity directed toward those who have wronged us, and it's what allows us to forgive them. So reconciliation is possible only through forgiveness and it is informed by the recognition of God's sovereignty. But notice finally with me the third point and that is that reconciliation is authenticated by sacrificial love. Reconciliation is authenticated by sacrificial love. The revelation of Joseph's forgiveness and his desire to be reconciled to his family leads him to, to issue some commands to his brothers. He tells them to hurry. In verse 9, he tells them to hurry again in verse 13. In fact, both of those commands bookend what he tells them to do. And, and, and I, I, I began to think about it. Why, why does he tell them to rush so much? Well, I think there's probably at least three reasons. Number one, he hadn't seen his dad in over two years, 20 years. He wanted to see him. He wanted to put his arms around him. He wanted to hug his neck. He wanted to see him with his own eyes. That's the first thing. Second of all, I think he probably knew his dad was old. He was. Jacob was old. This is probably the reason why he asked, How is, he, is he alive? What's his vitality like? Was he able to make the trip? Hurry. I want him to get here before his time passes. I want to be able to spend time with him. But the third reason that I think is there is that Joseph knew what his brothers did not know. 
from Pharaoh's dream, he knew there were five more years of famine coming. Only two had passed. And so hurry up, get down here, because things are only going to get worse for you in Canaan. I can't help you there. I can help you here. Come down. And time is of the essence. So what Joseph is saying is that he was in the position to do for his family what they could not do for themselves. He was in the position to take care of them. He was in the position to provide for them. He said, I will settle you in the land of Goshen. You will be near me, you and your children, your children's children, all the stuff that you've got. There I will provide for you. He's basically telling them, if you stay in Canaan, I can't help, and you'll die. But if you come here, I'll take it upon myself to ensure that you're cared for. And so Joseph authenticated. He validated the reconciliation and the forgiveness that he extended to his brothers by assuming responsibility for them and their families and by demonstrating sacrificial love to them. So what should we learn from this passage? What effect should this text have upon our lives? Well, to begin with, I think we must recognize that in Joseph, we are presented with a type of Christ who has acted toward us in the same way that Joseph acted toward his brothers. The Scriptures teach us that when we come to Christ in faith, repenting of our sin, the Bible tells us clearly, He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That does not mean that God just glosses over our sin. It does not mean that our sin no longer has any real significance. What it means is that God forgave our sins in Christ. And that it, it means that Jesus Christ paid the penalty that we deserve to pay. And therefore, God no longer holds the debt of our sin against us because Jesus paid that debt by dying in our place on Calvary's cross. So our reconciliation comes only through the forgiveness that we receive because of what Christ has done. Furthermore, we must understand that this was God's plan all along. In His sovereignty, God determined that our reconciliation would only come through the sacrifice of His Son. In fact, in the book of Acts, we hear the Apostle Peter proclaiming, from the day of Pentecost, he preaches. And when he does, he tells all of those who are present there that it was their sin of crucifying Jesus on the cross that would ultimately provide them their salvation. He tells them in Acts chapter 2, verse 23, he says, This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. And then later down in verse 36 of chapter 2, he says this, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. In other words, God used the sin of the Jews and their decision to crucify Jesus to be the very means by which He saved them. The sin of the crucifixion did not frustrate God's plans. Instead, He overruled it and He used it as part of His plan. And then we come to realize that not only is our reconciliation possible because of the forgiveness that is offered to us through Christ, and not only is it informed by God's sovereign purposes that He uses the very things that were meant as evil for good, but then notice also that it is authenticated by His sacrificial love. 
1 John 3.16 says this, By this we know love, because He laid down His life for us. Jesus Himself said in John chapter 15, verse 13, Greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's own life for His friends. So, through our examination of the life of Joseph here in Genesis 45, we are ultimately pointed to Jesus who forgives and saves sinners just like you and me who have sinned against Him. But we are also confronted with the responsibility that we have to act in the same way that Joseph did and the same way that Jesus did and the same way that Jesus instructed us that we ought to act. In other words... We have to be forgiving people who seek reconciliation and the restoration of fellowship in relationships that have been damaged and broken by sin. In fact, what what Joseph demonstrates for us here in, in Genesis 45 is what Jesus himself commanded us to do in the New Testament. In fact, in Matthew chapter 18, Jesus, Jesus tells the parable of the unforgiving servant. And he tells it in response to Peter. Peter's the one that asked Jesus... Lord, how often do I need to forgive someone who has wronged me? And then I'm sure he felt very magnanimous in his own answering of his question. He said, should I go as far as seven times? And Jesus looked at him and he says, no. Seven times 70. Now, I'm not real good at math. I let Ted do that. But I'm pretty sure that's 490 when you multiply it out. 70 times 7 is 490. Was Jesus saying, get your list out and see how many times somebody's messed with you? Because if that's the case, I'm sure that he was probably going, well, there's some people that are edging up toward three or 400 already. I need to see how many more times I've got that I can count. Is that what Jesus meant when he gave the number 70 times 7? No. What Jesus was saying was that he was going so far and above anything that Peter had said He is declaring that forgiveness has got to be a way of life for those who are followers of Christ. To be forgiving people is how we have to be known. And Jesus goes on to explain His answer by this parable that He tells. He says, There was a certain king who decided to settle all of his accounts, and he came across one of the people in his his kingdom who owed him 10,000 talents. And modern scholarship believes that that number could be in excess of 6 or $7 billion. In other words, it was a debt that that guy could never repay if he had a 1,000 lifetimes to work and try to do it. It was an incalculable debt that could not be repaid. But amazingly, as he asked for forgiveness, the king gave it to him, and he let him go free. He had compassion, and he no longer held that man accountable for what he owed. Such a display of forgiveness would have shocked everybody who heard this parable. Then Jesus tells us that that same man who had just been forgiven, that incalculable debt, goes out, finds someone who owes him 100 denarii, which would have been the equivalent of about one month's worth of salary. He grabs that guy by the throat, throws him up against the wall, begins to choke him, and tells him, you better pay me everything you owe me. Now, when the king heard that, he grabbed that guy, put him into prison, and turned the torturers loose on him until he should repay everything he owed, which, by the way, he could never do. Now, Jesus has set this parable up, and then he turns that question around on the people who are around him, and he says this, So my heavenly Father also will do to you if each of you, from his heart, does not forgive his brother his trespasses. 
You see, Jesus' point is that just as God has forgiven us, so must we forgive others from our hearts. In other words, forgiveness is not an option for believers. It is to be our practice because we have been forgiven. C.S. Lewis writes this. He says, to be a Christian means to forgive the inexcusable because God has forgiven the inexcusable in us. Now, even as I say this, in my mind, I can imagine that there are some who might object and say, but pastor, you don't know what's been done to me. You have no idea what she did. You don't know how badly he hurt me. It's too painful. It happened too many times. It hurts too much. I want you to hear me when I say that whatever hurt and whatever pain and whatever sin has happened to you, it is not trivial. It is not insignificant. The culpability and the guilt of those who have sinned against you is not imagined. It is real. And with it comes real pain and with it comes real scars and often should come real consequences. But we cannot escape from the example of Joseph and we cannot escape from what Jesus commands that his followers are to be like. We must be like Christ in that we are willing to forgive those who have sinned against us and caused us pain. As Nancy Lee DeMoss has written in her book on forgiveness, she says, those who remain intransigent or stubborn in their unforgiveness give no credible evidence that they have ever been forgiven themselves. Here's what I know. In order to forgive others, a choice has to be made. And such a choice is only possible because of the great power of God that begins to work inside the believer. Forgiveness is the great evidence that we have now become creatures in Christ and that the Spirit of Christ lives within us and begins to overflow out of us in the way that we treat and the way that we respond to those around us. You and I must realize just how much we have been forgiven. And then with Christ as our example and as our source of strength, we must extend forgiveness and reconciliation to others. And it is only as we remember what our Lord has done for us and then depend on Him that we will truly be set free. And that's what leads me to my sermon in a sentence this morning, which is this. As sinners who have been forgiven of our sins and reconciled to God, we must recognize God's sovereignty over our circumstances and continually strive to forgive and be reconciled to those who have sinned against us. As I close this morning, let me ask you, first of all, have you been reconciled to Christ? Have have you, just as Joseph's brothers had done, have you come to understand your sinfulness and have you come to Christ in faith, repenting of your sins and asking Him to forgive you? Let me say to you, that is step number one. You can't get to the next steps unless you come there first. 
If you have never done that, I want you've done. If you've never repented and trusted Christ, then I want you to hear me. You are not a Christian. And the scriptures teach us that you stand, one day will stand before God, condemned in your sins. But God offers you grace and He offers you mercy through what the Lord Jesus Christ has done. He sent His Son to pay your debt. The question is, will you place your faith in Him and receive His forgiveness which He offers? I pray. I pray that you will be reconciled to God today by repenting of your sins and asking Him for forgiveness. If you have done that, then the question is this, is there someone that you need to forgive? Is there someone that you have held a grudge against? Is there someone that you have sought to enact revenge upon? Someone that has wronged you and hurt you that you have been unable and unwilling to forgive? My prayer for you this morning is simply that you will allow this passage in the words of our Lord to penetrate your heart and to consider the sovereignty of God over your circumstances and to trust in His grace and allow you to forgive. As Alistair Begg has written, forgiveness is not skin deep. It is a heart-changing experience, first of God in Christ and then of us to one another. Brothers and sisters, this is the Word of God and it is for the people of God. Let's pray together this morning. Our Father, we thank You. First and foremost, we thank You that we have been forgiven through Christ. Not a one of us can ever stand before You and claim perfection. Not a one of us can ever stand in our own righteousness. But every single one of us must humble ourselves before You, acknowledging that only in Christ do we have forgiveness of our sins because He has paid the penalty for us. And in that regard, we are reminded of the, the beauty and the love that comes from being forgiven. But we also are reminded of our responsibility to live in light of that forgiveness. And so I have no doubt that there are those all across this room this morning who are continuing to think about relationships that should be repaired and the reconciliation that can come. My prayer is, is that one day we will be able to experience that reconciliation. To see those relationships that have been marked by sin and, and difficulty and enmity. That there could be reunion, but there would also be the replacement of all that strife with all that's good. And that all of that would happen for their good, but ultimately for your glory so that others will see what is taking place and say, how can you do that? And it would be the perfect opportunity for them to say, because Christ has forgiven me, that is why I'm able to forgive. May you be exalted. May you be glorified. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.